0: I'm Tom McKinnon. and I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth for KGNU for Tuesday, March 29, 2011. It's the science show that
1: makes you smarter. Coming up, a CU scientist will talk about how climate and droughts are threatening our future water supply.
2: By 2050, we might see declines of five
0: to 20 percent in flows on the Colorado River. And we'll look at how the oceans may be the power plants of the future.
3: The oceans are the only remaining vast, untapped source of renewable energy.
1: First, let's check out the science headlines. Our intern, Ted Burnham, has some news about how enzymes are becoming garbage collectors in our bodies.
4: Well, we've known that enzymes, those biological catalysts, play a key role in our bodies. But new research from the University of Bristol in the UK sheds more light on how enzymes clean up foreign molecules like drugs. Once a drug has done its job, our enzymes help sweep up the used molecules, typically by adding an oxygen atom to change the chemical structure of the drug. That works most of the time. But some drug molecules become toxic when oxygen is added, And others can prevent the enzymes from working properly. So drug manufacturers need to know how new pharmaceuticals will react with enzymes in the body. The new study focused on an enzyme called P450. The body uses it to break down many potential poisons, including a drug compound found in cough syrup. Once the enzyme grabs onto the drug molecule, it can choose from several different chemical reactions to deliver that additional oxygen atom. But the researchers found that the success of each reaction was akin to fitting a key into a lock. It depended on the shape of the lock the enzyme used to hold onto the drug, plus how well the drug molecule fit into that lock. The researchers say drug makers could improve our body's cleanup ability by tailoring each drug to fit the enzyme that it will target. They hope this will lead to safer drug molecules that break down more easily. The study is published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. For KGNU, I'm Ted Burnham.
5: Solar cells in the future may be more efficient, thanks to scientists at the Colorado School of Mines. Physicist Mark Lusk and his colleagues used high-performance computers to show that tiny, light-absorbing particles, called quantum dots, can use the sun's energy to generate more electricity and produce less unnecessary heat. The work supports a controversial idea called multiple exciton generation. In solar cells, Electrons obtain energy by absorbing a solar photon. The multiple exciton theory hypothesizes that a single energized electron could then transfer its energy to two or more electrons. If the theory proves out, we'd get more electricity out of the solar cell. Leskin and his colleagues determined that quantum dots make this multiple exciton process more effective. They also found that the quantum dots could be tuned to the wavelength, or color, of the incoming solar radiation. So a solar cell could be made of a collection of different sizes of quantum dots to harvest the rainbow of colors in the sun. Experimentalists are working hard to validate these computer simulations in the laboratory so they can be applied to actual solar cells. The results of the School of Mind study were published in the April issue of ACS Nano. For KGNU, this is Brianna Draxler.
1: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. The nuclear disaster in Japan and the growing concern over climate change has scientists and engineers looking everywhere for a possible means to provide power without generating radioactive waste or warming the planet. What about the oceans? They cover 70% of the Earth's surface and are constantly soaking up the sun's energy. If we could just find a way to f- harvest a tiny fraction of that energy, we have, have our energy problem solved. We have, us wi- have with us in the studio Robert Cohen to tell us how that might be done. Dr. Cohen is a consultant on ocean thermal energy and was the original program manager for Ocean Thermal with the U.S. Department of Energy. Bob, welcome to KGNU. Oh, good morning, Tom. So, Bob, can, can you give us a brief overview of how we start with uh, warm seawater and, and end up with electricity?
3: Well, the sun uh, uh, is a big natural collector of, of uh, radi- solar radiation, a built-in source of the planet, and uh, absorbs solar radiation and converts it into heat. So we have a big bath of warm water. And in the major oceans, uh, there's some cold water down at about 1,000 meters, 3,000 uh, three, 3, feet or so, cold enough near freezing so that you can use that temperature difference to run a heat engine, a power plants run on a difference in temperature. So in many of these, you have to be in a major ocean to get the cold water, but it was pointed out by Darsonval back in 1881, that he was the inventor of the galvanometer, uh, that this, he, this concept was pointed out. And now we're at the point where the technology is ripe and the time is ripe for making this a commercial uh, technology.
1: Okay, so you talk about a heat engine. Is that, uh, how different is that than, say, the, uh, the power plant we have over here in uh, Valmont, uh, just a couple miles away? Well, the only difference is there's no fuel required. Oh. Uh, we have a
3: very—well, uh, the other difference is that the temperature difference is quite a bit smaller. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the net efficiency is ridiculously small for ocean thermal, which means, essentially, you have to circulate a lot, lot of uh, warm and cold water, like a river of water running through the plant in order to produce significant amounts of electricity. But the bottom line is not the efficiency of the process. The question is, can you do this at a, an acceptable and competitive cost? Huh?
1: Okay, so let's, let's talk about the cost. Uh, how would it compare to um, other renewable technologies, uh, wind, solar, things like that?
3: Well, actually, favorably, even the first-of-a-kind commercial plant, which we think will have to be as big as 100, 100 megawatts. The first commercial plant is, is uh, forecast for Hawaii hopefully, in uh, the year 2020, uh, after we go through the intermediary of a pilot plant. We really need a multi-megawatt pilot plant first, but we think that that very first-of-a-kind, uh, subject-to-cost reduction plant, will cost uh, maybe a billion or a billion and a half dollars, which would be about uh, 10 or $15 a watt, which compares quite favorably with the... Uh, we well, have to make a rough comparison because they're not the same thing. Ocean thermal is continuous whereas uh, wind and photovoltaic power is intermittent. But if you multiply by the duty cycle, that is, uh, they're only available about a third of the time or a fourth of the time, so you have to multiply their costs by about three or four. But roughly, we're in the ballpark of 10 or $15 uh, competitive with mature photovoltaic and, and wind technology.
1: Ten or fifteen dollars per watt is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. For the very first plant. Okay. And so the the consumer doesn't buy a watt. The consumer buys a kilowatt hour. Uh, how do those costs compare?
3: Well, I think the uh, the estimate is roughly that uh, if you, if, it, if that plant were to cost about a, a billion and a half dollars, it depends on the assumptions of interest rates and so forth. But uh, that might run about 23 cents a kilowatt hour, which is quite competitive against oil. The very first market for ocean thermal is to compete against where oil is being burned for making electricity.
1: Mm-hmm. And and where is that?
3: That's in a lot of places. Oh. Uh, and in particular, for the United States, it's Hawaii, Puerto Rico, um, many of our military bases, actually. So the, the military, the Defense Department is quite interested in ocean thermal because that very first pilot plant is being designed to produce five or ten megawatts of power for Pearl Harbor. Hmm,
1: okay, <coughs> and so I just want to get back to the comparison to, to Valmont. Uh, so we've got lower temperatures, and uh, of course, don't have to buy the fuel. But the guts of the plant—they're—they're they're pretty similar. Is that right?
3: Well, basically, you you need an evaporator and a condenser and a tur- and a turbine. Uh-huh. Okay, and, and so uh, that's really the same innards that uh, power plants generally have.
1: Okay, so so we're at least sharing some existing technology. This isn't something uh, just. Uh, well, not quite, have, because
3: uh, in the power plant cases, they usually uh, they boil water and raise raise steam, as they call it. They per- they convert water, the working fluid, to steam. Whereas in ocean thermal, you would have to use a liquid that boils at a lower temperature, like ammonia. Ammonia mm-hmm. looks like the
1: liquid, the working fluid, we call it. Okay. All and, right. And so with the history of this, uh, how, how many of these uh, plants have been built in the past? Well, uh, you mentioned before the broadcast
3: that uh, actually the Tokyo Electric Power Company built one on the island of Nauru in the Pacific, the phosphate island. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that that was one of the earlier experiments. So the uh, There was a, an industrial offshore plant. This was onshore on the island, running the hot and warm and cold water uh, to shore, what the Japanese did in Nauru. Uh, But uh, the uh, Lockheed Lockheed Company and along with other companies put together a barge where they produce net power floating off Hawaii. Uh, This was in the tens of kilowatts range. So we really need to get to the megawatt size uh, before we really have a working
1: uh, proof of concept demonstration. Okay. So as we get to these uh, large plants, will they, will they live on shore and pipe the water in, or would they, would they be out on, uh, on floating no, barges? It's going to
3: be, it's gonna be uh, offshore plants floating, in, in the case of Hawaii and Puerto Rico, fairly close to shore, uh-huh. and pumping the electricity through cables. But the big payoff will be later on uh, when w- we can use floating grazing plants on the high seas where it's too far from shore to, to bring it in by cable. Uh, Then you will produce hydrogen, ammonia, so you have to convert the electricity to some other product, some energy-intensive product. Like hydrogen or ammonia. Uh-huh. Okay,
1: so the the, yeah. the marine environment has to be one of the the least forgiving places to uh, to put in uh, a large hardware. So uh, some of the problems that I've read about, like just a fouling of the heat exchangers with the kind of gunk that, that builds up in in the ocean, are, are those show stoppers, or have the uh, are the engineers coming up with solutions to well, it? Well,
3: that that there's no demonstrable showstopper yet. Everything is green. The lights are amber, if not green. Uh, And uh, they've been using coastal power plants, coastal condensers with regular power plants, which can be uh, controlled biofouling by intermittent coronation to EPA standards. So we're already used to dealing with the biofouling problem and corrosion. Okay. And are there
1: any environmental issues? It seems like there's no technology, even down to the concentrating solar power has its issues with the desert tortoises. So Mm -hmm. things that are apparently clean often have uh, skeletons in the closet. Uh, What about ocean thermal energy?
3: Well, we have to be careful how we uh, operate the plants. We don't want to perturb the temperature distribution in the first instance. So we have to be careful how we discharge the waters, seawater that comes out of the evaporator and the condenser. We don't want to really change the temperature distribution uh, and the other thing is the CO2 that's dissolved in the seawater, we have to avoid uh, bringing that uh, to the surface so it can get, in, get into the atmosphere. But basically, it's a carbon-free technology. And if deep ocean sequestration ever became technically and economically viable, we, we might be in well-positioned to do that as part of our process.
1: So you could couple these together, shoot the CO2 into the downpipe. That's, and it, it, that's it hits exactly the water right. Back yeah, but I'm
3: not sure that's ever going to make it. And it would have to be economic it would be an increasing cost to do that.
1: Uh-huh. But you might get a, some kind of carbon credit for it. And, and it could, Absolutely. Uh, we yeah. should get a carbon credit in any case. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Bob, we, we just have about a minute left. Uh, can you summarize uh, your thoughts or, or bring up any points that, uh, that we didn't get to? Well, maybe just to bring you up to date. Uh, uh, we, we sent out an RFP in the old
3: days asking what industry thought of this. The Lockheed Company and TRW came up with proposals uh, and it, they, they did the studies, and they, they came up with uh, an upcheck as far as the potential environmental, excuse me, the potential technical and economic viability of this t- technology. And, and in recent years, the Lockheed Martin Company has got back in the business, and they are the ones who are designing this plant I mentioned for Pearl Harbor. And they envision as soon as we get successful data from that, we can design, they can design a 100-megawatt plant, Commercial plant that will be competitive with oil, and there's a potential for saving maybe globally about two million barrels of oil a day, because it's uh, 40 megawatts. One megawatt plant will save 40 megawatts. For every megawatt, you can save 40 barrels a day. Excuse me, I got that mixed up. <laughs> every megawatt will produce about 40 mega 40 barrels of oil savings. So if you had 50,000, if you were able to attain a world market to replace oil.
1: Uh, 50,000 megawatts, you'd end up with uh, 2 million barrels a day oil savings. That, that adds up. <laughs> All right, so we've been talking to Dr. Robert Cohen. He's a consultant on ocean thermal energy. Uh, if you want to know more, Bob will be giving a public lecture uh, on this topic this Friday, April 1st at 12.20 p.m. at the West Boulder Senior Center. That's located at 909 Arapaho in Boulder. Bob, thanks for being on How on Earth. Thank you, Tom.
0: to KGN News, How on Earth. I'm Susan Moran. Continuing on the water theme. So while snow falls bountifully in the mountains to our west, east of the continental divide, including here on the Front Range, the land is parched. Well, despite a small reprieve we had last night, wildfires are already raging even before April blossoms arrive. What explains this variability in microclimates and precipitation? And does climate change play a key role? And most immediately, how can Colorado prepare for changes that are occurring? especially at a time when the Colorado River, a lifeline shared by seven western states, is dropping precipitously to historic levels. To discuss these issues, we have Kristen Everett, a geochemist and deputy director of Western Water Assessment, which is part of CU Boulder. As a staff scientist for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Dr. Everett was one of the many scientists who received the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. And apparently she just framed it. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I'm sending it to my mother very soon. Oh, Congratulations again, <laughs> Kristen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's start with, um, you just worked on and finished, sort of hot off the press, a report of Western Water and Assessment for the Governor called Colorado Climate Preparedness Project. Give us some of the highlights. And I mean, is this dire You know, we've been hearing for quite a while that it's getting drier and drier on the west, not necessarily, I mean, on the east side, not necessarily on the west. There's so much variability, but what does climate change have to do with it? And and is this a pretty dire scenario? Well, I think when we're
2: trying to deal with climate variability, which includes issues such as drought and floods, this is an important situation, but it's something that we're familiar with. We've had to plan for these types of events for a long time. But what's really uncertain is, How might the variability that we experience in the climate system and that we experience here in Colorado change as the climate begins to warm or as the climate continues to warm rather? And so what this project was, was it was a design to really catalog all the different efforts across the state of Colorado, including some federal efforts to really try and bolster our resilience within the state to climate change. So that's what this report was.
0: And the governor already has had this climate action plan. So what does this add? And, and what are some of the key recommendations? Well, in terms of the Climate Preparedness Project, this was a
2: follow-up to a report that we did, the Western Water Assessment did with the Colorado Water Conservation Board for Governor Ritter back in 2008. And that first report really cataloged all the physical science related to climate. So what has happened in the state? What have we observed relative to temperature? What have we observed relative to precipitation in our snowpack? And this was the follow-up. Because what we would do next is, this, this project is really designed to create a list of all the different, the the different items, the different things, the different programs, plans and projects that are in place. That way people can move forward and assess their own vulnerabilities to climate change. So
0: what are Colorado's key vulnerabilities (laughs) and, and some of the barriers to overcoming them?
2: There are a lot of different vulnerabilities. We haven't actually done a formal vulnerability assessment in the state, but we do know that many of the issues in terms of climate change, most of the impacts of climate change will be delivered through changes in our water
0: system, through changes in the hydrologic cycle. And speaking of our water system, so I've seen some pretty actually dire-looking graphs of the Colorado River. Both measured from Lee's Ferry, you know the main measurement point right. from 1922, right? And looking at Lake Mead and Lake Powell as dropping precipitously, and some estimate that it's basically going to be a mud flat within a couple <laughs> decades. Is that the case? And what does this mean for our lifeline of supply?
2: Well, in terms of Lake Mead running dry, there are a lot of different issues that could play into that potential, uh, uh, having that particular issue come to fruition. But population growth and drought seem to co- seem to combine to really exacerbate. Issues issues related to Lake Powell's and Lake Mead. In terms of the Colorado, the best science that we have right now is that we can expect declines of between 5 and 20% in flows on the Colorado River by about 20 and 50. However, that's strictly related to climate change, but we still have a growing population which is really going to exacerbate the problem, and really, climate change is going to exacerbate the issue of population growth
0: more so than the opposite. So it's this positive, actually negative, feedback loop. And in fact, aren't there cities like Phoenix in the southwest, the most arid places, at least in the U.S., that are growing the fastest? They're growing
2: very quickly, particularly in the far southwest. And down there, there's a lot of groundwater use. But when we're talking about the surface waters of the Colorado River, California uses a lot of water from the Colorado
0: River, as does the city of Las Vegas. So. Well, you know, we love those lights at night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but so what does this mean potentially for e- either collaboration or, you know, as Mark Twain said, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. <laughs> I mean, are you foreseeing some sort of a, a total revamping of the Colorado Compact? Maybe you can go into that in some detail. Or are we just going to be scrambling for resources? Because isn't it the case that Colorado and up, Upper, so-called Upper Basin, states have the junior water rights and actually would have to relinquish most of what they have to the lower basin states. That's true. When it really comes to a lot of the pinch points on the Colorado
2: River, it's all about who has the rights to the water. In terms of revamping the compact, that's beyond my expertise. I know that there are a lot of people, really smart people, that are thinking about these issues and trying to figure out what sort of management structure might best be able to facilitate or really serve the needs of this growing population
0: as we see declines in water resources related to climate change. So from your seat, right, it's not so much about policy, I mean, maybe some recommendations, but looking at what's attributed to climate change, what may be population growth, what may be other things.
2: Absolutely. Because I think there are the attribution statements, if you will, about X, Y, or Z event is caused by climate change versus climate variability versus all these sort of different, uh, any sort of, uh, of, any specific event. That's very difficult to tease apart because our water systems are very complex. And that's what I'm interested in is how things are going to change in the future and how we can best project what those changes will be to facilitate decision-making by those who really decide what's going to happen with our policies and regulations. And
0: first, we've got a couple minutes, so just a quick snapshot of what you actually are seeing from you know, the scientific data in terms of earlier snowmelt, etc., and what, what that means.
2: Well, it's very clear that in the state of Colorado that temperatures have been increasing steadily. We've seen increases of between one to three, two degrees Fahrenheit over mm. the past 30 to 50 years. In terms of the future, we can expect that trend to continue because we're committed to a certain degree of warming already because of our past emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But what's very interesting, you hear a lot about the West being hotter and drier. Colorado is a little different different because of the Rocky Mountains. And one thing related to precipitation, we actually haven't observed significant decreases in rainfall amounts. We continue to have a very variable system here.
0: So in closing so here we are in the front range you're saying it, the signals are a little mixed what what could those in the front range individually and at a government level do you know if you could wave your magic wand what would you say <laughs> yeah both individuals and those sitting in the governor's seat use less water <laughs> I'll drink of it. <laughs>
2: Fair enough. Using less water is absolutely important as we try to adapt to our climate and to
0: our changing climate. Thanks. And where can people go to find out more information both about the report and what you're doing at Western Water You Assessment? can go to
2: our website, which is www.colorado.edu.
0: Thanks so much for coming to the show. Thank you.
1: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The executive producer is Shelly Schlender. Our engineer is Brianna Draxler. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Issa Bagayogo.
0: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Tom McKinnon.